Who's the guy with the whip and hat? He's the subject of this great podcast. No time for love, Dr. Jones. Find the treasure, save the ladies, fight the Nazis, Indiana. Hello and welcome to another thrilling installment of the Temple of Doomcast, the official Indiana Jones podcast of the Fire and Water Network. I'm Ryan Daly. And I'm Nathaniel Wayne. And for those of you joining us for the first time, this is the show where we analyze, scrutinize, and discuss our favorite archaeologist, Indiana Jones. Our discussion topic today is going to be the best MacGuffin artifact in the Indiana Jones movies. But before we get to that, how you doing, Ryan? Uh, I'm okay. Why do you ask? Well, I know um, last weekend was a big deal for you. Oh, because I saw Batman v Superman. Yes, sir. What'd you think? Well, if I can put it in Indiana Jones terms, remember in the Temple of Doom when Molaram pulled that kid's heart out? Of course. That's how I felt after Man of Steel. Mm. Then remember when the kid was still alive and they lowered him into the pit to burn alive and his still beating heart caught on fire? Yeah. That's how I felt after Batman v Superman. Do you want to talk about it anymore? Not really, no. Okay, then. Uh, so, what's up first? Uh, listener feedback. Yeah, yeah. Uh, let's see. Last episode, you guys will remember that the topic was who is Indiana Jones' best sidekick slash supporting character? And we both agreed that it was Mutt from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. That's right. You turned me around. That's not who I had at first, but you did convince me. I mean, it's right, though, isn't it? I mean, he's the best when you actually go through and check off no, all yeah, the categories. You're right. I can't argue. Um, but most of our listeners dis disagree. Uh, lots of people voted or posted their choice for best sidekick on Twitter or Facebook. Overwhelmingly, the most votes went to short round. It's predictable, but completely wrong. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Siskoid, on the other hand, gave a full-fledged defense of the monkey from Raiders of the Lost Ark because it ate the poison date, saving Indy's life. That was probably the most realistic danger Indy was ever in throughout all four movies, so... Yeah, yeah I mean, the monkey came through for him. I mean, if you compare quality of effectiveness of the rescue to time spent in the movie, yeah, I mean, Marcus Brody wouldn't have done that. No, yeah, point. Uh, anything else? Going back to, again, last episode, we did disqualify Marion from the list because we both thought that she falls into the love interest category, mm -hmm. which is separate from sidekicks. Yeah. Rob Kelly disagreed with that, and he argued strongly that she was every bit indie sidekick in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, yeah I, but I think Rob's reasoning might have been clouded by his love of Karen Allen. He really likes Karen Allen. Uh, so anyway, moving on. Over on the Facebook page, we got seven new likes this week. Abel Padilla, Greg Barr, Richard Field, Max Romero, Ruth Sutherland, Mike Gillis, and Paul Rue. Thank you, guys. Uh, we got an email from Clinton Robinson, who hosts the Coffee and Comics blog. Clinton said uh, this show is one of his favorite podcasts. Then he said, question, on episode one, you talked a little about the movies Romancing the Stone and Jewel of the Nile, and Ryan said those might come up again in a future episode. Mm -hmm. This got me wondering if you had any plans to cover Crocodile Dundee in the future. After all, he was another action adventurer from the 80s who wore a signature hat. I think that's a great idea. Maybe. Well, okay, so maybe for our April Fool's episode, doing like a Crocodile Dundee show. Uh, I, I don't like it when podcasts redress their shows for April Fool's Day. Really? I love it. It's a gimmick. The joke gets old after like what, 30 I, seconds. I disagree. I'm going to convince you. Trust me. We will do a Crocodile Dundee show. Uh, we'll do something special for April Fool's. Okay. Well, is that it for listener feedback? Uh, yeah. Yep. And once again, thanks to everyone who left a comment on the Fire and Water website. 
Thanks for all of the likes and shares on Facebook. Thanks for the favorites and retweets on Twitter. Um, I don't know what the equivalent for a like is on Google+. I want to say holler back, but I don't think that's right. No, that, uh, yeah, I think you're right. It's uh, holler at your boy. That's what we get. So yeah, thanks for hollering back at us on Google+. Okay, Nathaniel, what is the next segment? I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Every single episode. You keep that. setting me up. Okay. All right, listeners. It is time for the segment we like to call Fact, Not Truth. If it's truth you're interested in, Dr. Tyree's philosophy class is right down the hall. This is the section where we talk about Indiana Jones news stories, mostly as they involve possible upcoming films. And that is exactly what we're talking about today. Earlier this month, Disney, which acquired the rights to Indiana Jones along with Star Wars when they bought Lucasfilm, Disney officially announced that they are going ahead with Indiana Jones 5. Woo! The movie is scheduled for a release on July 19th, 2019, which, curiously, is one week after Disney's planned release date for Marvel's Inhumans, further supporting my belief that that movie is not going to happen, at least not at that time. Now, the new Indiana Jones movie will be directed, once again, by Steven Spielberg, and it will star, once again, Harrison Ford. So any of those rumors or ideas that they were going to recast might be laid to rest. Uh, what do you think about the news of a fifth Indiana Jones movie? Um, honestly, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm of two minds of the thing. Uh, here's, I guess here's where I land. It's kind of a relief that Lucas himself is not involved. If for no other reason than his taking forever to decide on the MacGuffin was a big part of why Crystal Skull took forever to get made. Mm -hmm. um, and he's no longer part of that equation. So that's kind of a relief. I have no concerns about Harrison Ford, actually, because I, I thought he brought it in The Force Awakens. And beyond that, you look at Crystal Skull, he is not the problem. I know some people will still badmouth his movie, but I think it's just because they decided they don't like the movie and they're piling on everything. I thought that his performance was true to the character and suitable for the age that he actually is. I was completely fine with his performance in that movie. There were other issues. Mm -hmm. He was not the problem with that movie. And he has always said that he loves his character and he's happy to come back for it. So I'm fine with that. I'm actually nervous about Steven Spielberg because he is not the same filmmaker he was in the 80s when he was making these other movies. And I, I don't mean that as a knock on him. It's not like Steven Spielberg lost his touch. He's still making great movies. But what interests him and what he gravitates towards now is not the sort of stuff that he was doing in the 80s. And the sort of techniques and the way of making films that he does now is not what he was doing in the 80s. And I think that that disconnect was part of a lot of what felt off about Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Again, there were a lot of story problems there, but a lot of the presentation just did not feel like indie. And I think it's just because Spielberg has moved on too much as a director. And I would kind of rather that he sort of took over Lucas's role and stepped back to be the producer. And they brought in somebody else to actually handle the directing so that it could kind of pull what J.J. Abrams pulled with The Force Awakens, bring in somebody who really wants to make it feel like those old movies, mm -hmm. as opposed to force somebody who's moved on from that sort of stuff. That type of who doesn't anymore. make that kind of movie anymore to shift years backwards and try and do it again. I can see that, and I honestly, I'd never thought about that. If I had any concern for it, it would be Harrison Ford. Now, I thought he did do a great job in Star Wars The Force Awakens, but I had a big problem with his performance in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. I thought he was sleepwalking for a good chunk of that movie. Now, maybe The Force Awakens was like a booster shot, and he's going to like sort of recommit and do a lot more to it. So I'm, I'm willing to give it, but for the type of movie that it is, I 
it felt like they wanted the, the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull in some ways to be possibly a passing of the torch from one generation to the next, and then... I mean, they, they just didn't. They just didn't. The fan reaction, off. unjustified, as we right. covered last episode. But the fan reaction means they will never do that. Right. So, do you think they will or they must do that this time around? I mean, if they want to, I mean, this is either going to be the last Indiana Jones movie, or it's got to set up a new legacy or a, a, re, a reboot with one. For my money, this is the last one we get with Harrison Ford. Yeah. And then in. Well, one of two things will happen. Either they'll give us a flashback mm -hmm. with someone else mm -hmm. being young Indiana Jones, thereby seeding our, I don't want to say reboot, but seeding another actor being Indy in that 30s and 40s time set. How much do you want that actor to be the same guy that gets to play the young Han Solo? That would be epically awesome. <laughs> Whoever it is, that would be great. But either they do that or they or they wait five years and just recast and don't make a deal of it. I don't see them trying to do a legacy or a passing of the torch. And even if they could figure out a way to do it, I don't want them to do it. Because one of the other problems that I had with Crystal Skull was actually the 1950s setting. Mm -hmm. It felt very wrong. Now, once he got into the jungle... It felt better. There were still other issues, but it felt more like indie. But for that opening chunk, when he's in the 50s in the U.S., people wearing poodle skirts, it felt fundamentally wrong. And, and presumably I, they would have to stay in the 50s or even go up to the 60s. And they're, I mean, they're going to have to with this new movie, but they really need to not go any further than that. He works in the time, in the 30s and 40s. He just works there. And I think doing a legacy or passing of a torch, meaning you're just going to bring it closer and closer to modern era, which I think is a huge mistake because you just, you lose the flavor. I also think Disney maybe rightly isn't planning other movies after this at this stage mm. because they don't know what kind of reception this movie will get. Star Indiana Jones has a lot of fan support. Obviously, we're doing this podcast. No, like yeah. But in terms of the mass appeal around the globe and the marketing, Star Wars has always been a more bankable property than Indiana Jones. Maybe this franchise, maybe this one won't land with people. Maybe people really want to see a new Lara Croft Tomb Raider movie or something like that, or a new Nicolas Cage National Treasure movie. <laughs> Which, I, honestly, uh, say the say what you want about Nicolas Cage, I thought that movie felt sort of like it was going to be the successor of this type of movie. It, it's it's a chance. I mean, and who knows if they ever get the Uncharted movie off the ground? Right, right. So, um, so I, I guess maybe. I think the thing is, because when Disney bought LucasArts, they basically bought Star Wars. Yeah. There was other stuff that came with it. So I think the thing with Indiana Jones is, if a new movie comes out and it isn't a huge hit where they go, oh, people really want more, I don't think Disney's going to have a problem putting the franchise to bed for five, ten years yeah. until they get a team in who, who is willing to come in and take another crack at it. It's not like Star Wars where they're going to feel a driving force to keep making more. Right. So we're not going to get an Indiana Jones movie every year. Uh, no. I'm not going to say that's never going to happen, but I would say the the series as a whole would need a massive kick in the in the butt. And would have to land harder than anybody is ex would expect a fifth Indiana Jones movie to land in order for them to ever bring it up to that level. Okay, people, we're going to take a short break, play some promos for other podcasts on this network. Please do not go away, because when we come back, we're talking about the best MacGuffin artifact. He was a contender. From the gridiron to the main streets of the Marvel Universe. He went from sacking quarterbacks to tackling crime. He tasted the thrill of victory and the agony of cancellation. 
but now he's back to claim his champion season on his own podcast, Pigskin and Power, the NFL Super Pro Podcast. Each episode will cover one epic panel of this legendary 12-issue run. In-depth coverage as you would expect from the folks who brought you Supermates. I want nothing to do with this. I'm out. In-depth coverage from that one guy on Supermates. Coming this fall, Pigskin and Power, the NFL Super Pro Podcast. Another podcasting touchdown from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Have you ever been franked? You will be when the Fire and Water Podcast Network presents Diablo Frank's complete, unexpurgated, uncensored comments on the Who's Who podcast, as read by French Canadians. It helps shag. Captain Marvel was the blue devil of the 1940s, but successful. While everyone else was shooting for dark and violent superheroes, Shazam emphasized... Like, one of the least risible Firestorm foes. It's like an Iron Man. It's that Shag used the terms thiectonized, since thiectonization was a process of reprinting comics where back issues were bleached of color, embellished by an inker and reshot when there was no file negatives available. I use Zook as my catch-all example of Martian Manhunter, Slights, and Who's Who, since he appeared far more times than many other entry choices even as a cover-futured co-star of House of the Power of the Atom was arguably the worst thing that ever happened to Ray Palmer, which is saying something. It ran only 18... You've been franked. The complete Diablo Frank, only on the Fire and Water Podcast Network and iTunes. And we're back. The question of the day is, what is the best holy relic or artifact that Indiana Jones searched for? And we limited this to the artifacts from the four films. We're not doing Young Indiana Jones. We're not doing video games. Just the movies. That's right. That means Spear of Destiny is off the table. Just artifacts from the four movies. And it had to be an object that Indy was aggressively searching for that was either part of the teaser at the beginning of each movie, or it was a major artifact that drove the entire plot. So, for instance, the headpiece to the Staff of Ra doesn't count because Marion had it. The Grail Tablet doesn't count because Donovan had it already. Those are just helpful aids in finding the real treasure. Okay, so under that criteria, what are the actual artifacts that we are going after here? Okay, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, we have the Chachapayan Idol, we'll just call it the Golden Idol from the beginning of the movie, as well as the titular Ark of the Covenant. From Temple of Doom, we have Nurhachi's Ashes and the Sankara Stones. From Last Crusade, the Cross of Coronado and the Holy Grail. And from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, the Crystal Skull of Akator. So, you want to go first or you want me to? You know what? I kind of just... I just want to start at the bottom. Okay. Can, can we just immediately put Narhachi's ashes down at the bottom? I was going to try and make an argument for that by saying that if you put the movies chronologically, Temple of Doom comes first. <laughs> so that it would actually be the first thing we see him but doesn't even really retrieve it. And also, the prologue to Last Crusade is set chronologically ahead of time. Yeah. So I think we can probably say Nurhachi's Ashes does not count. It's I, it, it technically meets the criteria, but... It, I, it is it, probably the most MacGuffinist. <laughs> it literally did not matter. It's, it's the one that I think pretty much any of the rest of these, you name them and people go, oh yeah, that one people are going to... Wait, what? Huh? <laughs> so, I mean... Can, can, Okay, we'll go get rid of Nurhachi's ass. Out the window. 
and I'm sure we'll hit on most of these over the course of the discussion. If I were going to make my top pick, mm -hmm. I actually got to go with a golden idol head. Okay. Because I think it is the most simply iconic. Because, and, and there are other iconic ones in here. I think the Ark of the Covenant comes a close second on the iconography. But the thing about the golden head, the Ark of the Covenant, you see it and kind of, if you just see it, it, it sort of takes you a second. You go, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. You see that head? That head tells an immediate story. There's something about that head. It's very indicative of the part of the world where where you're set in. It's sort of barred teeth gives you this sort of slightly sinister feel. You immediately get the vibe of the entire temple that the thing is in. Just looking at that thing. Because it, it, he sees it for the first time. It's basically staring him down across this hallway <laughs> like, come at me, bro. <laughs> I love that head. I, I and I th I think it's that I think the strength of its iconog of its iconography is just ever so slightly more potent than the arc. Mm -hmm. And that for me, I would put it at the top spot. So like if if you told me I could get I could get a recreation or a prop of any of the artifacts from Indiana Jones, and I could only have one, that's the one I would get. That's a good one. Damn, I didn't even <laughs> think about it. That's a really good case. <laughs> so. Uh, curiously, my top pick, I was also going with one from the prologue of the movie, not one that we spent a lot of time going after, but it was The Cross of Coronado. Ah, and maybe, young Indy! And maybe it is forced, and I will grant you, they shoehorn and force a lot of stuff into this, but you figure it is the first thing we see him going after chronologically. Mm -hmm. He's a kid, it's 1917 or something like that. He sees this, he takes it. And through his quest to get this thing and bring it to a museum, we see him getting the hat, getting the whip, getting the scar on his lip, getting the fear of snakes. And it is eventually something that he will continue to pursue throughout his life because we flash forward to him trying to get it and like later when we cut 20 to the 20-some-odd years. So it is, it is something that he has been searching for half of his life. He tells that to Brody. Like, all his life, he's been looking for that thing. It's sort of, and again, I grant that this is really forced, but it created Indiana Jones, the version that we see. Through taking this thing, he got the whip, he got the hat, he got the scar, he got the fear of snakes. All of these things are encapsulated into that little prologue. I, I think you could definitely make the argument that that idol, more than anything, shaped who Indy is. I think you could definitely make that. Certainly on the physical and the, yeah. certainly the, the physicality, which is a major part of Indiana Jones, the physical presence of him, which, uh, again, is something I, I worry about when we see a 70-year-old Indiana Jones. Oh, but that's fair. Are there any other cases to be made for some of the other ones? Well, I think most people would probably make the case for the arc. Yeah. Um, because, I mean, the arc, the arc does have strong iconography. It does have a very strong, very distinct look to it. And certainly what it does mm -hmm. is incredibly memorable. Mm -hmm. I don't think too many people would make the case for the Sankara Stones because, I mean, it gets said in the movie itself rather dismissively. Magic rocks. And, and ultimately, that's what they are. And as far as what they are, they could have been almost anything. And it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have impacted the story. Like, if the arc was anything else, mm -hmm. it would have drastically reshaped the nature of that story. Right. The fact that it was the arc shaped that entire story. The fact that it was these stones... It could have been any... I still don't feel like I entirely know their, the backstory of the stones. No, I, I, I have absolutely no idea exactly what the deal with the stones are, but it could have been any piece of mystical knick-knack mm -hmm. right. from that part of the world or that religious basis, and it wouldn't have impacted the story at all. Yeah, Temple of Doom is not holding up well in this, in this It, it, it kind of doesn't. Um, the Grail's a pretty good one. I think... Yeah. 
My case against the Grail is that it's not unique to indie. The Grail as a concept, as an item, and the fact that it is just a cup mm -hmm. means that you know when you talk the Holy Grail, you're not you're not necessarily instantly going to think Indiana Jones, even though the arc of the even though all these things mm -hmm. are are things that exist separate from the movie universe. You hear Ark of the Covenant, you think Indiana Jones immediately. Right, right. You think Holy Grail. Maybe you think Indiana Jones. Maybe you think Monty Python. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe maybe you think you know the Arthur legend. It's in there, but it's not as intrinsically linked to this franchise. I think as some of the others are. I think this calls into question: What is what are we really talking about? Like, what is the greater MacGuffin versus what is the greater artifact? Mm -hmm. Because I think the mm -hmm. Grail, in a sense, is the best MacGuffin because it plays into a fundamental truth about a quest narrative, a quest story. And the Indiana Jones are quest stories the same way as stories about King Arthur and the knights are quest stories. And one of the aspects of those stories is you always have what the stated or declared mission is, mm -hmm. what the object that they're trying to seek is, whether they're trying to rescue the princess, whether they're trying to pull the sword out of the stone, whether, whether they're trying to kill the dragon or something. That's the stated quest object. But the real quest object is always knowledge and wisdom, or as Henry Jones says, illumination. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what the Grail represents. That in searching for that, he wasn't really finding this thing. It was the connection to his father. The movie was about rebuilding that romance, or not that romance. It was <laughs> that, a different movie. Very it was about movie. rebuilding the father-son relationship. And that's what the Grail represented. So it is more of a MacGuffin in that sense. But you're right. Ultimately, like from a visual iconic standpoint, I, I mean, it's it's pretty good. But I don't know if it captures the the spirit of all of the Indiana Jones mythos the way that the Ark or the Idol does. So. Yeah, I mean it's still a good one. Mm -hmm. But I mean I wouldn't make a case for for a top spot. Of course, that leaves us with uh, the Crystal Skull, mm -hmm. which is kind of an odd one to break down because. Sort of thinking about what we've already talked about, it certainly drives the story, and it does appropriately impact where the thing is set, who is after it, and certainly what happens at the end. So, functionally, it works. Obviously, a lot of people have a lot of distaste for it, but it, it certainly works functionally. Visually, it's weird because they actually had to deliberately explain why it does not look like the actual crystal <laughs> skulls which put it in a weird place to start with mm -hmm. and because of the whole alien angle that they went with the design is interesting but sort of needfully generic it's sort of it just is what you would kind of expect an alien skull to look like and again there's nothing particularly indiana jonesy about looking at that artifact right i can't really build a case for that one no i also can't build a strong case against it i mean my, my case against that would have more to do with my case against the movie yeah so i mean it, get, it kind of becomes like mutt in that way it's a it's a piece of a broken hole that it that actually taken unto itself mm -hmm. there is nothing wrong with or maybe even works right but you know you place it in the you you place one working component in a broken engine. Right. Yeah. You know, that one cylinder could be firing great, but if the rest of the engine is just going... <laughs> it doesn't matter. So, I mean, it, I mean it's, it's not... I'm not throwing it out like Nurhachi's Ashes, but I also wouldn't put it up there with the other ones that we've talked about. Mm. I think. So, 
Our, our own respective picks then are the are the Golden Head Idol and your case for uh, the Cross of Coronado. See, and I wasn't so certain about the Cross of Coronado, but I think, damn it, I think you've done it two episodes in a row. Ooh. I think, God, I... No, I'm I'm coming around. I'm gonna say you you made the perfect. I was kind of dismissive against the idol. I was like, oh, you're just gonna say that because it's the first thing we see and and we can move beyond that. But you're right. Everything about that. When I think of Indiana Jones, my first image when I close my eyes is him in front of that idol, rubbing his chin, trying to suss it out. Damn, that's good. <laughs> so, all right, two in a row, folks. <laughs> Undefeated. So, uh, we're going to play one more promo and we will be back in just a minute. Hooked on a Feeling, the Peter David Aquaman podcast. Join host Rob Kelly as he celebrates, through gritted teeth, the one true version of the King of the Seven Seas, Peter David's Aquaman. All other Aquaman need not apply. Hooked on a Feeling, the Peter David Aquaman podcast. From the makers of Zack, the Zack Snyder podcast. Once in a great while, a podcast will come along with the right champion on the right topic at the right time. And podcast history is made. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And Justice for All from the Irredeemable Shag. A new show tackling the rampant sexism in comics and other tough issues facing modern feminism. She's hot. You're missing the point. It's not about how the character's drawn. It's the fact that they didn't put any time and effort into showing this character as a real person. She's hot. Ugh. There ought to be a law preventing J. Scott Campbell or Mike Diodato from ever drawing female superheroes ever again. C'est chaud, c'est chaud, c'est chaud. I don't speak French, so I have no idea what you said. I just wish that her costume wasn't so skimpy. She's hot. Seriously? That's what you're going to focus on? Can we please spend some time talking about how this comic book doesn't even remotely pass the Bechdel test? Seriously, Shag, thank you on behalf of all women for your sensitive coverage of feminine issues in comics. No one else but you could tackle these concerns in such a mature and thought-provoking way. Coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And justice for all. And by all, I mean hot chicks, too. This is my fight song. Take back my life. We're back, folks, with our final segment that we like to call It Belongs in a Museum. This is where one of us picks something at random, a book, movie, comic, song, even a person of some cultural significance that we think should go in a museum along with the other artifacts Indy spent his life chasing. This time, it's Nathaniel's turn, and what have you got for us today? All right, I'm shaking it up a little bit this time. I'm not just going to suggest a thing that belongs in a museum. I'm going to suggest a wing that we need to put in this okay. museum. And this is inspired by our uh, by our future president, Mr. Trump. The great toupees of our times. All the classics would be in there. William Shatner, Sean Connery's Bond toupee, Ted Danson, and of course, Anderson Cooper. Ah, <laughs> oh, the Donald Trump toupee. The Donald J. Trump 
memorial, hopefully memorial, toupee <laughs> wing of the Indiana Jones Museum. Does indeed belong in a museum. I dig it. <laughs> Alright folks, that is going to be all for this episode of the Temple of Doom cast. Thank you, as always, for your support. Remember, Temple of Doomcast is a proud member of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Feedback for this show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Temple of Doomcast. You can find us on Twitter at Temple of Doom Pod, and please use the hashtag FWPodcasts if you tweet about us. The Temple of Doom podcast is not affiliated with Disney or Lucasfilm, and the opinions shared on this podcast do not reflect the views of anyone except us. All music, audio clips, and quoted texts are used for entertainment purposes and believe covered under fair use. No copyright infringement is intended, and we don't make any money from this podcast, so please don't sue us. Thank you for listening, and as always, you have chosen wisely. That that disconnect was part of a lot of what felt off about Kingdom of the Crystal <clears throat> Excuse me, Crystal Skull. And even if they could figure out a way to do it, I don't want them to do it. Because one of the other problems that I had with uh, Kingdom of the Crystal <clears throat> Crystal Skull, I, I have trouble. Can't I can't get through the title. My God. Um, and from King. <clears throat> You can't do it either! What the hell is it about this game? <laughs> and from Kingdom of the Crystal Skull.